Hey everybody, how's it going? I just wanted to uh, give this one a little bit of an introduction because we had some technical difficulties, but I mostly got them all sorted. I just wanted to give you a heads up that the connection wasn't so hot, so there's a little bit of clicking in the background on one of the tracks, but whatever. I mean, come on. This isn't Joe Rogan. I don't even have a Patreon for Christ's sake. Also, a few short bits were lost to the ether, so I had to do my best to kind of piece things together in a way that flowed. Anyway, it should be pretty much fine. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Now, here is my conversation with Uriel Fiore. It was really fun and cool. We talked about a lot of crazy stuff. All right, Yuri, we are recording now. How you doing, man? You all right? I'm, I'm good. Pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> cool. What's going on? Anything new today? Right now? No, I just got a tattoo yesterday. I guess you've seen it. I posted it on Twitter. Uh, oh, I yeah. Got, I got it done yesterday of uh, all the models and it's (laughs) that's the newest stuff (laughs) well that's great why don't we start there then why don't you tell us about it uh yeah i I don't know it's it's it was a cool idea i had back uh last month basically i was checking out some some uh the two artists uh folder and she had this snake in the form of a of a double helix uh, so I got all hyped up, but then I, 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 I got more interested in the Ouroboros because I mean, it's, it's such a nice symbol of cybernetics, you know, it's self-productive and, and, yeah. sub, and sub-consumptive, like <laughs> Nick Land got me, you know, <laughs> my ankle about it on the timeline earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Because yes, the, the snake is consuming itself. So I had to, re- to reply that you know, Say's law is is basically that consumption is the flip side of production. So it's it's out of production because it's out of out of consumption or something like that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Well, that's exciting. Um, what was I going to say? So what I what I feel like I should do is um, give our listeners a little bit of an introduction for you because uh, you and I actually know each other somewhat well by now because we've been talking a lot over the past year on the internet. Um, but probably for, you know, the average person listening to my podcast, they might not know who you are or know much about your work. So I'll do my, uh, best at giving you a very brief, uh, bit of introduction and then we can, we can take it from there. So, I mean, the way, the way that I would kind of describe you is, uh, the way I like to describe many of the kind of weird, interesting kind of thinkers on the internet, uh, that you find nowadays, uh, what I, I have a kind of pet term that I use to, to kind of label all the people out there like you, uh, and to some degree like me too. Um, it's the term I use is the, the batshit <laughs> blogosphere because, to, to, yeah. because, to, because I, I kind of see it as like this ecology of just, you know, in one way or another, just kind of uh, strange, somewhat weird, a little bit crazy, uh, really just independent, Often brilliant, but uh, you know the the real defining characteristic being just kind of radical independence, uh, and that generally means people shooting off into uh, pretty far out spaces in 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 whatever way that might be. Um, so I would say you're a, you know one one of many brilliant members of what I call the batshit blogosphere, and you know you're uh, you know loosely associated with these sorts of debates around accelerationism. And that's kind of how you and I have uh, gotten to know each other on the internet. Um, but I, 
so, so that's a kind of quick and dirty as to how I know you and, um, you know, for our listeners who have no idea what, uh, you know, what, who you might be or what you do. That's, that's how I would kind of, uh, summarize you, but a little bit more specifically though, you, one of the reasons that I'm interested in, in your blogging and, and just kind of the stuff that you're working on and talking about right now is that you are, um, you are interested in these themes of accelerationism, but you, uh, you, you're kind of like me in that you're not, at least my reading of you is that you're, you're not quite willing to completely, um, throw away everything kind of associated with the left-wing tradition. So in particular, like your main blog, Antinomia Mediata, you talk about a reaction from the left. And so you're, as far as I can tell, you know, you're very interested in equality and, uh, you know, the themes that are associated with kind of the radical left tradition, also like liberation. Uh, but you're also trying to think through very seriously, uh, you know, the, the, the very real, um, challenge, I guess you could call it of the accelerationist, uh, moment, which is, you know, the, the, in a nutshell, I would say it's, it's sort of the, the increasingly apparent reality that human agency itself is being foreclosed in some sense. Um, so I would say that's, that's something that you and I kind of have in common. And I would love to just basically spend as much time as, as we want, um, trying to kind of understand, uh, how you see those things. And so maybe I could just begin by asking you, um, you know, what, what is this idea of a reaction from the left? Like, how would you describe that? Okay, yeah, <laughs> I started, I mean, I have a background mostly in, in anarchist circles. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't already so common circles of anarchism. It, it's, you know, market anarchism and anarcho-capitalism and mutualism, which are, you know, fringes of the anarchist movement. You know, it's not the mainstream anarchist you get <laughs> on the streets usually. Uh, and, uh, then I, I, I don't know, weird currents brought me to Nick land, which I think is the catalyzer around it. And of course his recent work is on new reaction. Uh, and you know, this, there is actually accelerationism and new reaction and, and the relations between the, these two things aren't quite, you know, laid out yet. But, you know, a reaction from the left, at least as I originally conceived it, was uh, trying to get back to what uh, being a leftist meant when the term the left came into being. And my, my, my cue there, my, my hint, my, my line of, of thought goes back to, to Proudhon, which is basically the, the, the forerunner of, of anarchism, you know, the first guy to say, no, I am an anarchist, <laughs> you know, and, and his train of thought that is specific, some, it's a specific kind of very specific kind of progressivism, uh, and industrialism and, uh, his, his things about confederation and, uh, commerce and the, the, the and modernity and so on. And, 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 strive to, to reach that understanding of, of what, you know, a left, a progressive left could be from this understanding, from this more or less reactionary <laughs> understanding of what the left is. And, uh, wait, so, wait, so could, how, how is Proudhon 
uh, reactionary. Well, it, like, what it's do you mean reactionary by that? because uh, it it is not your staple of current progressivism. You know, it's not what you in, in 2018 is not what you think about progressivism when you read Proudhon. Okay, I, I mean he. Had, so, like, get, get, give us like an example uh, for someone who doesn't well, know. Proudhon. I mean, for example, he's you know heavily anarchist. His uh, actually anarchist is against the the, the interference of uh, centralized state apparatus. Uh, in, in the economy and his highly less, less affair. And, you know, this is an understanding of what liberal was in the 19th century. I guess he defined himself okay, gotcha. as a liberal a few times. He run, ran for an office. Uh, although he had some quibbles with the liberals of the time, the economists. <laughs> uh, but uh, in general, yeah, this understanding that, you know, the left is all for industrialism, is all for the industrial revolution. And the thing that, that the left was opposing back then was uh, some stripe of right-wing thinking that was against industrialism, that was trying to get back to the ancient regime and, uh, and you know, things like that. So, right. So, you know, right. what usually, in, at least in, in the Anglosphere, we would call the, you know, the far right, <laughs> you know, like the libertarians and stuff is what basically is the understanding of, you, you know, a reactionary left, you know, a left that understood, that is understood in, in its original uh, positions. Okay, got it. So, did you want to carry on with what you're... I kind of interrupted you about Perdon. Do you want to carry on with reaction no, from the I, left or I mean, uh, go in a different direction? Basically, the idea was that. Uh, originally, uh, as you, if you go reading the blog, uh, and right now I understand the blog as something that is not just me. It's something that running through it. Uh, but if you go reading the blog, the thing is, uh, I started very... I liked the, 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 a few of the concepts uh, The near reaction was... Pushing through, I, I read a little bit of Moldbug, I read a little bit of Nick Land, and as I read more and more, I was shedding, you know, layers of, you know, common sense leftism <laughs> as uh, I went through. Uh, right. So, you know, the reaction from the left initially was, you know, the left wants to destroy the Western civilization because the Western civilization is holding back uh, industrialism. And, and then it proceeds to, you know, reach out. I don't know. By now, my, my understanding is that, uh, basically any leftist approach that is heavily humanistic, you know, that, that cares about uh, the, the weak and, and the poor people, you know, the human beings, uh, is probably missing out uh, on, on what's actually happening. You know, my last, uh, uh, my last post was basically, you know, uh, what we should be thinking about is in terms of cities, you know, of a, a large network of cities uh, forming a, 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 that, that are themselves individuals and these individuals have the actual ability of being sovereign and being independent. And these individuals will form, the cities individuals will, have, will form a, a, a peer network of and a free society that, you know, by itself forms a new super organism that is capital, you know, basically that's the last shift that I've been trying to, to work on. So, I mean, I'm, I'm already, uh, right now I look at, at what I used to, 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 to read and, and talk about 
like back in 2015, before I actually found out about accelerationism, uh, like, you know, the Center for Stateless Society and basically the, the market anarchist milieu. Uh, these guys are, I look at them and I say, okay, you, you, you're so beside the point <laughs> right now. I mean, have you taken a look at what's going on? <laughs> and I, but at the same time, right. I, I still feel uh, the kind of, the kind of, of feeling that I had for the traditionalist right that I, I felt back then, you know, that, you know, you're basically dumb. <laughs> you, you're not, you're not, you also not paying attention. You, you think you can just go, go back. So while the left is trying to go forward without a, actually understanding what's forward, uh, uh, the right is trying to go back without, you know, pretty grasping that, you know, there is a, a certain di direction to time and, and the way in the day, the way out right. cannot be the way in. Right. Okay. So you, you used to be kind of a more traditional anarchist then only really recently have your ideas sort of changed. And it, was it specifically through coming into contact with the work yeah, of Nick Land? That's, that's Is that right. right? It was, you know, uh, the transition between so, 2015 and 2016, basically. That this happened. Right. So why don't you tell, I'd be, I'd be very curious to hear a little bit more about um, how that played out. Um, like how you encountered the work of Nick Land and what were the kind of insights that, uh, you know, were most important to you or in, in kind of shaking up how you, saw these ideological yeah, divisions? Uh, well, the, the first thing I, I, I did was reading, you know, Phenomena. And Phenomena already has a lot of the themes. You know, if, as you read through it, 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 it it's very, it, it's a, a, a nice roller coaster of, of emotions there. And it's really interesting. But uh, little by little, you go understanding that, you know, uh, it, it, you, you start shedding that uh, humanist stuff. Okay? And this is pretty much the first encounter I had with Nick Land is, you know, leave humanity behind, you know, this, this stuff about, because, uh, you know, in market anarchism, but basically everywhere, if you go uh, in terms of ideology, you know, there's this stuff about that came with the Renaissance and stuff that, you know, human beings can do stuff. You know, they are rational beings. They are, uh, they, they can control stuff. They can think about it. They can plan and, and they are ready to go forward because, you know, they, they have this rational ability. They are special in a certain sense, you know, like, uh, you know, manifest destiny of humanity mm -hmm. and so on. And, and it, as you go reading Fang Numina, it, 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 it's basically argument after argument that, you know, that's dumb. <laughs> you're, you're nothing more than, uh, you know, you, you're a monkey. You, with you know one part of, one part of a body just got too big but uh, elsewhere you basically you know you just have the same instincts as any other animal you just want to survive and you know and you you're dealing with a a, a kind of of uh, environment that gets ever more complicated and complex and you you if you still think that in, in modernity you can you know control stuff and, and have foresight and you know do stuff by your own it, you fooling yourself, and this is this is basically this is the gist I get from Feng Nu. So this is the first uh, my first contact with Nick Land. Uh, as I and then I started translating the the the, the texts and so on. And this was basically end 2015, beginning 20, 2016. 
uh, and then I, I started, uh, I got interested in, well, okay, but this is, you know, from the 1990s, this is, you know, some older stuff. What's he doing right now? Because he came into my, my view because he was doing something evil and dark right now. And, and, and you know, and I was, and people were pretty offended around me that he was saying some kind of stuff. And I was like, what the hell is he saying? You know, I was curious. And then I went to, to you know, systems and, and uh, urban future. And I read through the blogs. And, and the second thing is, okay, but uh, this humanist uh, establishment, which is the, the ruling class in, in modernity, it's coming to a solution. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the, 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 the yeah, the, the main, the main <laughs> thesis of new reaction is, you know, okay, these guys have been running the show since uh, the glorious revolution, these progressives, and they're they're destroying everything in their, and they have been amazing doing that. I mean, they they are really good doing that. You know, the industrialism has been pushed <laughs> through all barriers of traditional society. But right now the problem, and I think that from Nick Lenz's point of view, at least the problem is exactly that this progressive establishment has lost its force, has lost its, its ability to actually do great stuff uh, and to actually, you know, push through the boundaries. And it's now caught in its own, it's tired of believing its own lie <laughs> and it, it, it cannot go move forward because right. it cannot leave behind uh, the, the kind of tenets that, you know, underpin it, you know, like, you know, that, that all human beings are born equal, right. that all human beings are worthy, that everyone has got that little shining light in their souls that, uh, and so on. I mean, which is basically the, the, the underpinning thing about progressivism is everyone deserves uh, to have equal rights. Everyone deserves to have, uh, uh you know, uh, to, to be cared about and so on. Uh, and, you know, the thesis of a new reaction is that this kind of, this uh, core of values are w- what's holding back industrialism from in its next phase, the phase where it sheds this, this humanism and it starts doing, and that's where, you know, the, the description of something like, no, this is evil <laughs> because yes, from the current, you know, set of values that are being held by this establishment, this is pretty evil. You know, this is, going against everything right there. So this is basically the, the main continuity mm-hmm. I see between Fang Numina and Xenosystems and what's got me going through the ideas. And then, of course, there, there's a lot of interesting ideas about, you know, the undoing of the American empire and the fragmentation of political entities into smaller units. And then, uh, you know, the, the whole idea about patchwork and then, you know, uh, what, what if we privatize government and government becomes a corporation and so on. And, and of course it, it start getting into, you know, race realist territory from there on, you know, and, and it gets complicated. Uh, but uh, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the sure. initial for thrust sure. was that, you know, so, the shedding of the humanism, both, both in, in older and newer work from Nick. Right. Okay. So that was, so that was a really nice little summary of kind of how you got into it and what you were, you know, what really interested you in the work of Nick Land. But something that I should kind of back up on and, and go over for people is that is that one of the reasons I was asking you this was because you are actually, you know, something of 
an expert on Nick Land, given that you've translated his work and you've actually done a fair bit of editing work, like compiling and organizing uh, some of his scattered fragments from the internet. So, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to boost your ego too much, but I mean, I I would just want to kind of share for the audience that in the world of people who have read Nick Land and understand Nick Land, you're probably up there towards the top of the list. Is that fair to say, given that you've translated and you've you've done a lot of work with his his writings? I'm very familiar with uh, his both his blogs, his newest stuff. I actually compiled uh, the blog, he, the, the first installment of Urban Future that ran from 2011 to 2013 before he split into two blogs. Uh, and I, I, I managed to get those, mm-hmm. all those scattered pieces and bring back into a single blog where people can access that. And, and I've translated, yeah, I've translated a good amount of, of I've translated the whole uh, of Ang Numina into Portuguese. But mostly, I mean, uh, there, there's other pieces of Nick Land's work that I'm not very familiar with. Uh, you know, the CCRU uh, site, I haven't read everything. The, an older blog that's called Hyperstition, I haven't read much of it. Uh, the first book he wrote on, on, on Jorge Batez, uh, it, it really, uh, The Thirst for Annihilation, I haven't read it yet. I'm, I'm planning on reading this year. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> I, I've... I know quite a lot of, of uh, probably things that people that read Nick Land probably haven't read a lot. You know, like basically I read the whole of Xeno Systems and the whole of Urban Future. So, you know, that's something that most people that are familiar with his work haven't done. Uh, so, you know, I, but it's uh, uneven, you know, I, I don't know everything, but I know a, a specific piece that most people don't, I guess. That was really good summary of, of, your experience with Nick's work and uh, how sort of familiar you are with his whole body of writings. And, you know, it's actually really interesting to think about that because I find it so fascinating how, you know, as you know, and you kind of mentioned it before, Nick Land has become pretty, you know, he's persona non grata in most kind of institutional intellectual fora in, you know, the Western countries at least. And uh, because of that, it's very interesting that the people that are actually most expert on his work are kind of random people on the internet, like in the batshit blogosphere, like you, you know? Um, and so I find that really interesting uh, because he's actually, he's written so much and it's, it's, it is really complicated and it's like scattered in fragments across, you know, the, the internet. And so it's like, there's all this controversy around what he thinks and, you know, uh, what he actually means. Uh, but because he's persona non grata, most people don't, actually know but if anyone has a you know of all the people who have a claim to actually being familiar with the whole span of his ideas uh you would be towards the top of the list of people who actually are really quite familiar with the whole expanse of his philosophy so i i'm not trying to boost your ego i'm just i wanted to kind of let our listeners know that that's one of the reasons why i'm especially keen to pick your brain about what he thinks because you know you have a a, a good claim to um you know understanding what what it is he actually thinks so maybe we could go right into the to the larger issue of how you see Nick Land uh, from the left, because what the reason I think that's a really uh, kind of that, that's one of the million dollar questions is because obviously he's been vilified by the left and is largely kind of prohibited from attention on the left, um, and he's largely most celebrated today from kind of right wing people on the internet. Um, 
But you, as someone, you know, who has, you know, kind of a tradition with the left and, and, and certain kind of affinities or affiliations with, with left-wing ideas, you are interested in Nick Landon. So you, you surely your reading of it is such that, um, you know, Nick Land is not as completely and uh, unilaterally yeah, as okay. right wing uh, as I think it some makes people sense think. To, to how would you how would you Land, uh, speak about that, or is there anything in, in particular you'd like to say in that regard? Uh, extremely right wing, at least in uh, anglophonic uh, context. But uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm in right now a different culture, and in this different culture. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to imagine that uh, his position, especially, you know, his radical classical liberalism is pretty left-wing. I mean, it's, and I mean, in trying to imagine it as a reaction from the left, I mean, if Nickland had lived by the time that Proudhon lived, would they be, you know, allies or would they be enemies? And I think they would be allies, you know, they would be allies against, uh, 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 you know, a withering uh, aristocratic ancien regime uh, uh, class that was trying to push back on industrialism, that was worried that this would destroy all the traditional uh, structures of society and so on. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's my reading of, you know, how Nick Land it could be understood as, you know, a left-wing figure uh, but it, 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 it demands that you remove yourself from the context of, you know, American politics or even British politics. And, and you know, uh, that, so again, it would demand that you shed the, the, the humanist layer, you know, that you look at it like, okay, this guy is cheering for industrialism, for capitalism. This guy is, you know, against uh, uh, the, the, the traditionalist and, you know, pretty conservative a view that most, you know, mainstream liberals nowadays hold, but he he he, he would be against in, in previous times uh, against uh, an older right, possibly. So you know, so I mean, and this of course, uh, you know, plugs into uh, Moldbuck's theory of history and so on. We can talk a little about that, but I guess you want to uh, right. ask something. Right, I forgot to tell our audience that you are in Brazil. Uh, and so that colors your your perception on a lot of this. Actually, it was pretty cool. Earlier in the conversation, there were some uh, interesting like street noises coming from your microphone. Uh, it sounded like I don't know, like street cars honking or something like that. And I it it, it evoked like a very kind of uh, yeah yeah um, you know like futuristic really, you know, like urban <laughs> kind of uh, accelerationist so image in my mind. It was pretty cool. Most of the time, I mean, um, even are you in time, you're in Sao Paulo? Is that right? On Saturdays. Uh, so yeah, it, it has this. Uh, proto cyberpunk <laughs> stuff going on around here. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I'm in Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's awesome. It's a perfect uh, natural soundtrack for the podcast. Um, anyway, so the, the second thing I wanted to say or ask you about a little bit more specifically, just to kind of uh, zero in or, or dive a little deeper on concrete uh, issues within these abstract questions is a good example of, of how, you know, how to kind of parse accelerationism from the left or from the right is to zero in on this idea or question of equality. 
So I noticed that, you know, we've talked about this before that, you know, you and I both are very interested in, in some ways committed to uh, certain ideas of radical equality from a philosophical perspective. Uh, But, you know, one of the major sort of talking points, I guess you could say, of the more neo-reactionary takes on accelerationism is really kind of stressing the degree to which human beings are not equal. And in in fact, in your own kind of uh, commentaries earlier in the conversation, at one point you, you mentioned that and you, you were kind of somewhat mockingly referring to the, you know, the, the leftist ideas about how human beings are all equal. So this is a really good kind of concrete example. Like if we are committed to the equality of human beings on a philosophical level, how do you process, uh, you know, the, yeah, the, the sort the of, um, equality, uh, all these insights that, that some people are putting forward about important to talk how, about, you know, human beings are possibly, between, you, know, you know, radically equality, you know, and formal equality. Formal equality will probably be something uh, nearly synonymous with, you know, anonymity, you know, uh, and I, I think that I'm radically committed to this idea of equality, of formal equality uh, as anonymity. Basically, uh, it, it means that you don't know who is better than the other beforehand. You don't know uh, how uh, how characteristics are distributed beforehand. You cannot plan for them. The, therefore, the ancient regime organization of you know formal mm. formalized rank by birth uh, uh, doesn't hold because it, it assumes that you can tell beforehand whether some specific individual uh, uh, has some characteristics or not. Even if these characteristics are uh, largely inheritable. Uh, or, you know, at least partially inheritable, uh, you cannot, you know, pinpoint to the individual level uh, of, you know, individual people. Uh, you cannot pinpoint that. You can only talk about, you know, statistics. And statistically, you know, you have only a uh, 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 degree of probability of finding that those things. So formal equality is something I'm committed to. And I think the original understanding of left-wing uh, you know, radicalism was about bringing everyone into a perfectly formal, equal, formally equal uh, framework where people could be judged by their performance rather than by, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, a priori uh, cues about their personality. So, you know, so it, it, that's, that's basically the, the understanding uh, of Equality. There's another understanding of substantial equality that has to deal with, you know, right. uh, has to do one with, you know, people are actually born equal and only their opportunities after their birth uh, actually affect the performance so that if you can uh, level those opportunities, people will be leveled uh, uh, during their lives. This is, I, I think that at least implicitly, uh, that's, you know, the naive understanding of what you know, modern liberalism means. And there is other also understand, uh, I mean, which are more other understandings of substantial equality, which are more related to, uh, you know, Marxist circles, which has to do with, you know, maybe people aren't, you know, born equal, but they can, can be made equal uh, 
through some sort of, of, of redistribution of wealth or uh, through some sort of organization uh, or planning of economy so that people can have at least a, a, a baseline level of life that is equal for everyone. So nobody falls short. And I think that, I mean, uh, at least in, that might be closer to formal equality than uh, the, the, the modern liberalist understanding that, you know, people are, mm. uh, uh, people are born equal and they, they, they do not differ at birth in, in terms of potentialities. Uh, I think that the, the, these are the two things. This distinction is important to talk about. Uh, and... Uh, I don't know if you want to ask something else moving on to. Well, I know that you're interested in what is called mutualism. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is? Because I don't really even know. So go to Wikipedia, for example, you'll find two articles about mutualism. One uh, deals with the, the, the biological theory of, you know, mutualism, which is about, you know, two organisms that uh, cooperate by their self-interest. Uh, you know, they, they, the, the classical example is, you know, you have a crocodile and you have a bird that eats uh, from the crocodile's mouth. The bird wants food. Uh, the crocodile wants to get his teeth clean. So both organisms cooperate by their own self-interest, which is different from other kinds of biological cooperation because uh, it, it's, in, it, it's not uh, to only one advantage and not to only one's interest. It is, both sides are, you know, cybernetically coupled in order to, to, to uh, take an advantage out of a mutual cooperation. This is mutualism uh, in biology. Uh, mutualism, then you have a political philosophy. There is uh, how uh, Proudhon actually described his idea of, of you know, uh, uh, of what humanity was progressing towards uh, uh, in, in terms of, of, of social organization, which was an under, a transferring of that mutualism, uh, that biological mutualism into the political realm, which was, you know, basically, uh, uh, which is you know, very similar to, to uh, Adam Smith's descri description of uh, the economy. Basically, you know, uh, everyone has their own self-interest and this self-interest is best served by cooperating with each other at certain points. Uh, so, I, I mean, my understanding basically of, of what mutualism means, uh, and I guess I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm displacing both of these understandings when I say that, is that, you know, basically the universe develops uh, according to a mutualist arrangement, you know, uh, I, 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 and then I'll, I'll dwell on, on cybernetics and basically, you know, there's a mutual excitement between uh, several poles that actually propel the universe ahead to develop new forms and so on. Uh, so basically I know a cooperative competition, you know, so I, I would describe that as being, but you know, if you, if you have the, the, the understanding of, of, uh, you know, biological mutualism and you try to make analogies around it, I guess you can understand what I mean by mutualism. I have a post about mutualism and the basically I pinpoint down it a little bit, but you know, basically, I, I, I refer back to this to this uh, biological understanding of what mutualism is. You know, basically, two organisms cooperating because of their self-interest. 
Okay, got it. That that no, that that was that was perfect. That's just I just wanted to understand what that uh, ism even refers to. So now I understand it. Thank you. Um, so I mean, actually, that's that kind of gives us a useful jumping off point for maybe talking a little bit more about equality because I mean I I sort of think that equality is is a useful sort of uh, condensation point or a touchstone for trying to concretely work out some of these complicated questions about the, the ideological space today, because so basically I guess I'll try to make a kind of argument or point and you can just respond as you please. It seems to me that the, the left today is, is like, it seems very clearly to be putting all of its baskets and by left, I mean kind of, you know, the mainstream like uh, public image of, uh, those who kind of operate with the leftist label or whatever. Um, it seems to be putting all of its eggs in the basket of the idea that um, there are not hard inequalities between people. And so it's like you, you, as you said before, you can, you can separate out formal equality and the, and the, the, the rights, if you want to use, uh, you know, a, a old term that you might find obnoxiously humanistic. Uh, but you know, the, the right to basic formal equality and perhaps, you know, the even radical inequality of outcomes that you would observe in, uh, just organic competition, you can separate those things out and maintain, you know, and, and, and maintain a radical commitment to the former while completely accepting the, the latter. That's a perfectly viable, uh, solution to, to, to this problem. Uh, but that seems to be precisely the one that is not available. Or for some reason, it's like not possible to have that position. It's not being selected by, you know, the institutional ideological, like filtering mechanism or whatever. Um, but it seems to me that you could, you could potentially construct sort of communities that are willing to do both of these. So like I think about often, you know, I think sometimes about the possibility of how do I put this? Like if there, if there could be a viable kind of left wing project today, it might have to be something like um, a kind of radical acknowledgement of serious inequalities kind of confronting that inexplicitly about just the, the raw differences that exist among human beings and, and actually taking them really seriously, like organizing your thoughts and behaviors around those realities and updating your mental models based on those realities, which are, which are basically like systematically suppressed today by most people on the left. Um, but, but you'd also have to kind of systematically avoid all of the pitfalls of, Neo reaction, which is, you know, kind of like, uh, Ubermensch LARPing and kind of like, uh, I think one of the drawbacks of kind of the more traditionalist, uh, right leaning takes is that it tends to be very kind of, you know, it has a tendency towards like isolation and kind of like, you know, I don't know, like moving into the woods and like starting like a survivalist fortress with like your family or something like that. Uh, or at least like, you know what I mean? Like those are the kinds of connotations. Uh, but it seems to me that the, the promising uh, possible pathway, which is 
you know, notably not being pursued anywhere I can really find is a kind of non-isolationist. So, so kind of collectivist, but, it, but in a small sense, like in a, you know, communalist, uh, small C communist sense, building kind of like, uh, radically equalitarian in the formal sense communities where truly everyone in the community is, is treated as having equal dignity. Um, Again, you might find that an obnoxiously ancient uh, humanistic uh, word, but it's one that I, I still find I, difficult to part with. Uh, so, so imagine a kind of small kind of communist uh, unit that prioritizes radical formal equality, but also everyone uh, just is willing to agree to uh, the empirical inequalities that exist uh, between all of the people. And not only do they acknowledge that and not suppress it, but, and, and here's where I think like things get kind of screwy. You'd have to kind of um, like status hierarchies would have to also be updated and reflect these differences of ability and, and, and whatever it might be. So that what it would look like is something like ancient noblesse oblige, but within communities. So like the people who are really, really smart and able and very, very productive within the commune would have to be, you know, uh, respected tremendously and, and given a certain, you know, unequal amount of the admiration and praise and, and whatever it might be circulating in the community. Um, but in return, the less able people would also be genuinely respected for their basically equal dignity. (laughs) And, um, and also they would be materially supported by the more productive uh, agents. Um, and so I basically just uh, kind of ranted at you a kind of batshit uh, idea for like how you would, squ- how you would square the circle of, uh, you know, radical commitments to equality, but also yeah, a kind yeah. of devilish okay, uh, yeah. radical <laughs> confrontation mean, with, the, with you know, the, the empirical reality of inequalities. This is the idea. Uh, I wonder you, if uh, uh, any back. of that resonates with you, know, you or if you want to okay, just comment on anything you know, in any other direction this, from there. <laughs> uh, formalized uh, specific territory where we do things like that. Uh, would that work? I think that would work uh, and probably would work better than any of the political arrangements that we have today. Okay. Basically, yeah. I mean, it, it will work because if you if you if you're talking that, I mean, we're not uh, it, it, we're not basically. I mean, there we have formal equality. We don't make assumptions about what, what capacities people have or not. But when they demonstrate that they are more capable than others, they they get whatever they get from from that, and that's okay. And I mean, all they have to do is you know give a little bit back so that people that don't have those abilities can, you know, sustain a baseline, uh, lifestyle, you know, basically, you know, which I, I guess is what I understand by dignity, you know, uh, you saying that, you know, everyone will have, you know, this baseline lifestyle. Uh, and I, I think that will probably be very productive and, right. and therefore it will be very secure and therefore would, you know, survive in an environment of competitive patches, you know, which is patchwork. Uh, I mean, okay, the only sure. quibble I'll have this is once you have a very competitive system, and how would would this, you know, this specific patch compare in terms of productivity uh, to a patch that you know did everything similarly 
But instead of, you know, taking that little bit of people that, you know, succeed to give back to people that haven't, uh, that one that doesn't do that, how would that, you know, how would that compare in, in competition? Uh, I have, you know, some ideas about how they'll play out, but I, 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 I'll be open to see, you know, I, I think you cannot tell him beforehand for sure what would happen. But, I, but, but I think that, I think that's pretty much the realistic left project for whoever calls itself, you know, a, a mainstream liberal right now will be something precisely like that. You know, let's, you know, get people that think right, like us, people that uh, could agree with this kind of, of model, bring them together in this space and let's build it. And just that, I, I think that, you know, that could have been done a bazillion times in the last uh, hundred years, but people are actually, you know, well, I'm absolutely sure that this works. And right now we have to conquer the whole world to make it work because it has to work everywhere. And, and it's like, I think that's bad shit insane, but you know, the realistic, I think that this plan that you offline, it's really realistic and can, you know, even in, in you know, the current understanding of what leftism is, <laughs> it's actually leftist and it is realistic at the same time. I mean, I think it's, uh, of course, right. as you said, I don't see that coming from pretty much anywhere in the left, but it will be amazing. <laughs> so, okay. That, well, that's, I'm glad you think so because maybe we can uh, hypothesize a little bit more about oh, yeah. how that would work. Um, yeah, okay, but before yeah, we do that, I, I feel like we should I mean, it's um, the last give a little bit of a sort of angel explanation idea of that a concept you invoked before when you talked about patchwork. That's uh, kind of inside baseball. So maybe you can tell our listeners what you mean when you refer to patchwork. In many contexts, under many uh, ideas, that basically, you know, you have certain uh, spaces, some certain territories, uh, which decide everything that isn't inside of them. And they pretty much ignore everything that happens outside of them. So it's basically it, it, this. This is the, the you know the minimal concept of patchwork. Uh, this is the Westphalian Treaty, basically. And then there is you know in the 19th century there's this idea of of panarchy, uh, which changes it stretches mm-hmm. it a, a little bit because these uh, territorial units wouldn't be so much geographical territorial units, but would be, you know, loose associations of people that live, but, you know, each association uh, controls what's inside, uh, you know, their members, but don't touch on the other members of other uh, associations. Uh, then there is, you know, uh, Prudonian, uh, in, in Prudon, this is called the confederation. Uh, you know, they have various federations of workers and they confederate. So with federation takes care of their own business. Uh, they do trade, with each other, but they do not interfere with each other. Uh, you know, and then there is, uh, I think there is, you know, uh, uh, Scott Alexander's, uh, archipelago, which is basically that, but instead of being territory units, it's islands, uh, which are territory units in a certain sense, but, and then there is, you know, the idea of seasteading. Seasteading is basically, you know, you have an island that moves, so, but it still is, you know, every island takes care of their own business and they do not interfere with the others. And, you know, finally, the term patchwork comes from Moldbuck. And Moldbuck, you know, is simply updating that age-old uh, understanding, basically by saying, no, this these units would have to be uh, able to independently secure themselves. They cannot, uh, you know, count on the, right. the goodwill of the other entities. 
do not interfere with them. They will have to actually realistically be able to prevent other uh, these other entities from interfering with their business. So basically, you know, so he conceptualizes the, the, the patches as, you know, soft corps, you know, sovereign corporations. Uh, and these soft corps, they are, uh, their business is basically providing this sovereign defense, this, you know, independent defense uh, against, you know, these other entities. And they make a profit out of it. You know, they mm-hmm. provide a service and receive a profit out of the, the revenue. Basically, that's the idea of patchwork. And uh, the only update is that, you know, Mobuck's making explicit something that was possibly implicit before that, you know, how are you actually, you know, how are you going to be sure that these, uh, that these entities are actually independent? You know, uh, you know, everyone just counts on the goodwill of the others. Uh, okay. I will not interfere with you. I promise. Or they're actually going to have some sort of realistic way of stopping that. Uh, and well, I guess that's the basics of patchwork, you know, uh, and, and inside each, each one of these patches, you know, the policy is decided by this, uh, according to Moldbook's view, by this sovereign corporation. But this sovereign corporation doesn't need to be, you know, uh, your usual joint stock corporation, which he thought that was the best model, but it could be any model, you know, it could be, uh, 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 you know, a uh, customer owned uh, company. Uh, or it could, it could be a, a mutual agreement, a, 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 you know, a free association of people. It could be anything, you know, a, any sort of uh, administrative uh, arrangement would fit inside this formalization of patchwork. Perfect. So that that's a perfect summary. Now, w- something else that I want to ask you is that how often I, I when question. people talk about patchwork, there's often a kind of implicit empirical prediction also, or a kind of sense that, Patchwork is sort of also where things are inexorably moving to some degree. Are you sympathetic to that? Is that how you see it uh, or no? Well, meaning I I think around this idea of patchwork and the people that are kind of thinking around those ideas, there's often also associated ideas that fragmentation is sort of the, uh, the political tendency of the day and that the world is kind of through structural dynamics outside of our control. Uh, we will be, we will be approaching yeah, I think a that, world that looks I mean, more and more like patchwork in a sense, to some degree, whether we like it or not. Simple, um, I, I think some people kind of the have that, that premonition. Uh, maybe I'm wrong you know, to, the, to the sense that. Right but, has uh, is that how you see it? Or do you think that, uh, like, do you think that patchwork is the direction that things are actually moving or no? Not really. You know, you have a few, three big players, you know, China, Russia, and the U.S., uh, they are basically, you know, they command basically most of the world and right. you know, they, they arrange the world according to their military capacity. Uh, but I think that that phase, that specific phase of, you know, large integration is, uh, you know, coming apart basically because, you know, the American empire doesn't seem to be able to sustain itself anymore. Uh, and I think, yes, that, that once you remove the American empire, uh, of, you know, from the equation, you know, as long as you don't have, you know, hundred, uh, you know, a military bases from the U S uh, in 150 countries, uh, once this starts deteriorating by a series of other economic undercurrents that are happening, uh, you are likely to move to a much more decentralized and fragmented 
political landscape. There are other, you know, tendencies that also, you know, favor that. But with the United States, is still hanging on as as military as a military superpower. Uh, it will be harder to see how they flourish. But you know, seceding is one thing. Obviously, if you'll be constituting, you know, independent political units. Uh, the other stuff is, you know, various secessionist movements uh, that they're, you know, popping up basically everywhere in the world, uh, and. I don't know. I think all this stuff, it's coming together towards something like patchwork. I don't know. I, I can tell for sure that it's going to be uh, something that is so, because, you know, patchwork is an idealized, you know, model that, you know, can be disturbed by a lot of complicated things because, you know, the business of sovereign defense isn't really that easy to do, you know, you know, to, to actually be able to control everything that is inside, which is the first step before you, you can actually not care about what's happening outside. And, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of pores in each one of these cells. So it's, it, it, it's complicated by the realities, but I think we're moving at least, if not towards a specific patchwork, we're moving to at least uh, a more multipolar uh, political landscape, at least, I mean, very least in the West, I mean, I, I would say, you know, in Western societies, you know, United States, the Europe, probably, you know, Canada, I don't know, but possibly not in other places, in other spheres of influence. But likely in the West, I think we, we see fragmentation of political units happening you know, as we move on. In, in, in the 21st century, I can't pinpoint down a date, but I think by 2030 we'll be having much, many more uh, sovereign units than we have right now. At least a hundred. <laughs> like people think when people hear about patchwork, it's generally seen as a kind of right wing idea, and I think that that's just because the kind of highest visibility theorists of patchwork and and i guess you could call them activists of patchwork like the seasteading people uh are just tend to be kind of like right leaning or right wing uh libertarian types uh so it has this kind of uh right wing connotation or flavor to it but to bring this back to what we were talking about before when we were talking about sort of new models of you know small c communism you know there's there's no reason at all in principle why patchwork should have right wing connotations if you can have if you can if you can design a patch that operates on the leftist principles you believe in or whatever it might be, if you can make it work, then there's no reason that can't uh, kind of win the competition as it were and, and spread or whatever it might be. Um, so that is, I think it, you know, useful for people to, uh, to note or to remember. Uh, and so, cause the way that I think about it is like, if like, okay, if you're a leftist, cool, whatever, like you have certain beliefs, you have certain, uh, commitments about what you think the world is and what matters or whatever. And it's like, well, if you really believe those beliefs, then you shouldn't really be, you shouldn't feel so threatened by uh, figuring out a way to make them compete in reality. Like I, I'm, I tend to be of the opinion that, um, you know, I mean, for what it's worth, for the most part now at this moment, I, I, I don't really see myself as ideological at all. I guess I've, I guess I've come uh, pretty clearly into the, the, I guess you could call it non-ideological or maybe unconditional, you know, is a word that we use, uh, that might be a better word, 
uh, I'm, I'm pretty, I think, squarely in the, the ideologically unconditional camp. Um, so for what it's worth, I mean, I'm not speaking as like a leftist. I'm, I'm, I have no interest in kind of taking up that uh, position or anything like that. But but I do remain interested in the in the fact that like what the way it's, the way it looks to me is that the left and the right are basically kind of temperamental biases. Like we know the psychological substrates of leftism and, and, and rightism. And it kind of makes sense. Like people have different preferences. People have different uh, semi-biological uh, drives and temperaments. And so it kind of makes sense that the population tends to uh, split or divide along uh, a certain dimension. Uh, some people prefer security. Some people prefer openness, you know, these sorts of, these sorts of basic trade-offs, it makes sense that different people have different preferences on those fronts and that that would manifest as different kind of political visions. Um, but what that means to me is that there are, there are kinds of truths kind of, uh, baked into the left and the right. You know, there are real and empirical and relevant kind of human needs at the, at the base of the left and the right. And I don't want to sound like a kind of milk toast centrist because I'm not, I'm not that either. I'm definitely not trying to take to take that line, uh, but my one point for the moment is just that. Um, although the left today seems increasingly kind of stupid and insane, I, I I'm still interested in uh, you know the baby in the bathwater, as it were, um, and I and I do actually think that. I mean, my my wager is that the patch that would really succeed is going to be the patch that is actually most aligned with our true human needs. And maybe that's a kind of uh, unjustified faith. Maybe that's just like a, uh, some sort of uh, almost religious uh, uh, faith that, you know, the normative truth and the empirical truth ultimately converge. But I do actually really think that. Like, that seems to be the case to me, simply because whatever community or whatever whatever institutional design... Um, can give human beings the most accurate kind of reflection of their true nature. Like that can give them their needs as fully as possible uh, in a, in an ethical or normative sense is probably also going to be uh, the most productive. I mean, there, I think that that's just a, that's a pretty reasonable or rational wager that um, the ideal institutional design tends to be at the place where, you know, empirical reality and, and normative ideality converge. Um, and so I, that's one of the reasons why I'm, you know, I've never really been like threatened by, you know, the mold bug or patchwork or, you know, Nick Land's devilish ideas. Like I don't find any of it. I find it all just kind of fascinating and interesting and complicated. Well, one way that Nick Land put it was, you know, you're flushing people away. It's okay. I mean, I would love to, uh, one of the things that, uh, first got it was, you know, I would love to live in a city like Sao Paulo, devoid of all the reactionaries. Imagine that. <laughs> that would be amazing. And I, I, I kind of agree. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the first thing I thought about when you said, that, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the leftist patch would win. It was, you know, think about, you know, American Civil War. Uh, American Civil War was won by the North. I mean, by a large difference. It, it was pretty easy. If uh, people in the, the people in, in Europe were actually watching the war and thinking, <laughs> "What are these Yankees doing, dude? Uh, what are, what do they have?" Uh, and you know, because they had such a confidence in their 
in their model of society, you know, and in their, their model of society was actually delivering stuff like, you know, the automatic rifle that could, you know, the, the fucking Yankees charge once and shoot for a week. You know, right. that's, that's the kind of military right. difference that, you know, this kind of open society brings. And I think that the best idea after the, the, the civil war yeah. would have, you know, well, you just free the blacks, let them come to our northern patch, and you can do whatever you want in this plantation of yours. We're going to be watching. And, you know, this kind of thing, would, I think, you know, although I don't think some kinds of, you know, leftist ideas would work on a more general level, but I think that, you know, this sort of confidence about, you know, your model of society is actually what drives this specific, you know, fragmentation. It is specific, you know, the, the The system can only work if everyone believes that what that, that they're doing actually is worth, you know. Uh, you know, basically, if you think of a company, why does a company, you know, if a company thinks, uh, uh, no, we, our model cannot compete, they, they will not go into the market. They, they, would, they would simply not go there. But, you know, everyone that gets into the market and, you know, is ready mm. to test their ideas, um, is ready to, 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 to put stakes on it, you know, put their lives at stake there. Uh, you know, right. and in, in the case of, you know, sovereign business, it would probably mean actually your life. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that, I mean, of course, people who should be, and that, that's the complicated part, I think, they should be ready to, to understand that, yay, this failed. We should move on to another thing or, you know, how does a society, you know, a sovereign business liquidation goes on about because, you know, sometimes you go bankrupt. Right. <laughs> and, and I think that's the part of uh, that human psychology is not so ready to, to, to admit, you know, that, you know, right. we lost, we lost, therefore we're, we had a bad model. Well, I think you're really right to, to highlight human psychology because I think a lot, I really do think that a lot of our biggest problems right now for, you know, salvaging livable political communities is, is, is basically psychological challenges. Like it, it is really hard to uh, kind of wrap your head around certain <laughs> things uh, or to adapt to certain kind of realizations or, you know, rapid technological changes and their implications. Like these things are genuinely, uh, and I know I like they're genuinely hard to um, accept or, or kind of adjust. And I, and I don't want to at all sound like I'm, you know, LARPing as some sort of like Ubermensch who understands everything and I've accepted all of the hard realities, but why can't, you know, the, the, the stupid masses update their psychology? Oh, it's because they're too weak and they have to get stronger. You know, like I'm not, at, I'm not at all trying to say that I'm, I'm including myself in, you know, the, the camp of the masses who are having a really hard time updating and, and psychologically maintaining the, uh, the tension of that. But my, so, so it's not looking down on anyone at all. It's just a point that, um, I, I think like the, the frontiers that are immediately available to us for genuine radical political advancement are basically psychological frontiers. Um, in the, in the sense that if we can, all of us, um, or, you know, in small experimental batches, whatever it might be, um, if we can learn to kind of, un unwire and, and sort of rewire our psychologies. Um, I think, I think really interesting kinds of uh, possibilities open up. Um, and maybe that, I mean, maybe going down that rabbit hole is, is a whole other 
um, you know, conversation we might have in a totally different podcast or whatever, but I was just kind of commenting on, on that one point you mentioned. Well, so I'm thinking there's maybe one kind of more, uh, yeah. how should I put yeah, it? No one more theme <laughs> that I might introduce and we could talk about no, for a little bit, fine. uh, before we kind of wrap it up. Um, you're, you're researching something for what? Yeah. So to what we're talking about with patchwork, uh, it, it's actually a fairly natural segue is I want to ask you about, uh, cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. in the 21st century. It's, you know, the absolutely most huge stuff. And it's actually one of the drivers of, of, of the, the kind of, yeah. you know, chaotic moves that we're likely to see in the political <laughs> field, especially because it, 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 it it completely takes out the economy out of, you know, <laughs> once things start migrating to blockchains and, and, and everything, uh, you know, it completely takes out the economy out of, you know, whatever, uh, purported, uh, control governments had uh, upon it, you know, uh, you know, so this is of course huge because, you know, a lot of the 20th century has been based on, you know, you know, regulation, from governments and so on. Uh, and uh, I think that's huge that we're going to see it, it's a fragmenting uh, force of its own that's probably not being paid attention because, you know, it's a bunch of teenagers playing an online game with coins. Uh, it, it actually feels like that a lot of the times if you look at the, at the little symbols and, you know, the numbers and, you know, people making right. money out of it. And, it's, it, you know, it reminds, it reminds me a lot of, you know, how we felt, you know, when people used to play, I don't know, Gambound or, or World of Warcraft. They had this uh, internal economic systems where you could trade items for, you know, tokens inside the economy and so on. Uh, and right now, you know, it's basically that, but devoid of the game. You know, the game is reality, but you have these <laughs> yeah. tokens that you can trade for items. And so it's, it's really interesting. Uh there's one other thing that's probably underdeveloped right now, but I don't know if you've heard of, you know, big nations and stuff, which is basically using the, the, the blockchain, uh, system, the blockchain technology to actually, you know, create ledgers of people of associations, you know, you make associations of people and you can even build, I don't know, reputation markets on it. And I think that, it plugs a lot into the idea of the patches. You know, imagine, you know, you have these sovereign corporations that, you know, provide this sovereign defense right. uh, system, uh, uh, this service. And this uh, bit nations, this loose associations of anonymous people and everything, they hire that, uh, those services. So, you know, people from this specific bit nations can access, you know, easily this, this providers of sovereign services, uh, but not these other ones and so on and so forth. And I think the the ecology of stuff like, you know, Ethereum and, you know, there are, you know, recent more copycats of Ethereum, you know, and Ethereum is supposed to work like a marketplace, you know, where you can build your company in there and your company, uh, you, you know, is digital business, but, you know, you can make smart contracts and you can trade, deal, uh, trade goods and, and, and services through these, you know, you know, you have this ecology of Ethereum and then you have, you know, there's the Chinese Ethereum that's called NEO and you have another one, another ecology there. And then you have another one that's called EOS and you have another ecology there. And these things are, you know, in the beginning, you know, Ethereum started in 2013, it's five years there. And, you know, it's, it, it's gathering uh, uh, momentum right now. So, you know, the, 
So I guess there's all these the, the, these new ways of thinking that are arising with this new technology, uh, which I think in, in a lot of ways is similar to you know uh, you know the press you know when it first appeared in you know, Gutenberg made the press and you know a lot of new ways of thinking were being de deployed because you know now you can print stuff and you can make you know uh, pamphlets and you, and so on and so forth and that changed the world together of course with other military. Innovations like you know gunpowder, but of course th these two things uh, feed into each other in very interesting ways, and I think that mostly people are not paying attention to you know what blockchain uh, economy is going to look like in ten years because right now they're too worried about I don't know Trump last tweet. <laughs> so a lot of the, the, the big thing, uh, the, the big very big picture is being missed because of triples. Well, it definitely seems crypto definitely seems to be. A, a kind of direct complement to the the patchwork kind of vision, I think, right? Because basically, blockchain, when it's yeah. well developed, will allow communities to basically uh, kind of regulate themselves, right, through a uh, decentralized uh, kind of enforcement system that doesn't require any um, kind of government. I mean that's that's kind of that, that's basically what and and there's no and there's no kind of limit to how much people can uh, split off. So you could basically have uh, any number of blockchain based patches. He talks about you know cryptographic guns, you know, which basically you know if you mm -hmm. if you have the sign if you have the signature, it, it, it works. If you don't have the signature, it doesn't work. And you can think about uh, and many other systems that are cryptographic locked in this way, and they can be made to work with blockchain technology. So, you know, you have this basically decentralized way of, you know, materializing orders, you know, materializing decisions. And this this is great. I mean, this is what you said that of, you know, this coupling of this thought model of patchwork with the, 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 the blockchain Nothing could have been, you know, if, if you have, if you were writing a story, probably you wouldn't have come up with such a good coupling of technology and model. Right. I, I think the only thing that's right now is the, that, that techno, that military technology, you know, the cryptographic locked gun, you know, the cryptographic locked systems of security or systems of, you know, gates or, uh, you know, right. factories or so on and so forth, you know, These things are still pending, but I have heard of developments in those systems. I mean, the first thing that you can obviously think is, you know, uh, for example, cars are being automated right now. If you can cryptographically lock them, then, you know, you cannot rob a car anymore because, you know, it, it, you cannot break into it. Okay, but the big question is, can we tokenize Cave Twitter? Yeah, I mean, there's a few projects that have been looking lately you know do uh, have you heard of the the basic attention token it, it's a cryptocurrency that just went live like last uh, later last year you know in december or something and it's basically you know uh it's a way of you, you, what am i going to pay attention to right now and you know whoever paid more <laughs> and, and basically you get these tokens i mean there's a browser it's called brave 
and uh, it has a, a, a crypto wallet associated to it. So you have an account there. And, you know, if you watch ads, you get payment from them. You get these tokens from watching these ads. If you block the ads, you don't get the revenue. But, okay, you don't get the revenue and so on. So, uh, so I mean, I think this can affect intellectual uh, 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 understand uh, conversations because, you know, it, it will make people, you know, people that actually believe in their message and, in, 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 you know, I want to spread this message, I want to talk about this, I want to broadcast this, and then I, I would pay people to listen to me and people would pay to reply and people would, you know, they would put their, their actual productive stakes in, into uh, intellectual discourse, which has been one of the main critiques I, I, I've seen coming out of this, you know, the later chaotic movements of, of Twitter is basically, you know, you know, you know, talking is easy. Okay. You, you can talk about a lot of stuff. And, but what, what really do you want me to listen to? You know, the main problem for, you know, uh, cognitive ecology right now is there's so much information. What do I pay attention to first? And what will take most, what would bring me more, and what would bring me less, and so on. Yeah, no, definitely, that's a million-dollar question. And I just think about also, like, the there's so much uh, widespread kind of dissatisfaction with contemporary educational institutions, especially higher education. Um, and, you know, as I think you and I both probably agree, there are, you know, there, are, there just do really exist certain uh, truths about, you know, the, the nature of uh, human life that, uh, just don't fare very well in kind of respectable liberal institutions. It's not, I'm not like Ubermensch LARPing or anything like that, but I think that's just, that's actually just a pretty well-known thing, uh, both from, from the left and the right, you know, like the, the mainstream liberal institutional narrative uh, is always kind of systematically uh, excluding uh, certain, certain difficult things that it has a hard time selecting and processing. Um, yeah. I, 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 there's another project. Uh, I don't, quite recall the name, but it's basically, you know, to- tokenizing uh, uh, online education, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff, you know, on online co- education right now, but there's people trying to bring that into the blockchain. By what I understood is basically, you know, uh, a way that people can choose, uh, those, can actually, you know, transaction uh, for education in a certain sense. And there is, uh, you know, it goes straight to the teacher. It doesn't passes through some sort of institution, uh, and also, you know, it's, it, it, there's a lot of, of stuff that, you know, disintermediation, you know, uh, ending up the, the, the institution of the university, you know, the university has something more than just students coupled with teachers. Uh, I think that's one of the main consequences of, you know, bringing this, you know, disintermediation that internet bring, brings into the, the stuff because, and this is, hasn't happened so far. Uh, you know, even if you go to stuff like Coursera or uh, some similar, you know, uh, academic online resources, the stuff is that it's all still plugged to, you know, Harvard University, Yale University, and so on. Or, you know, this course is hosted by this institution. And I think that a lot of the stuff that, that's coming up is, is, you know, the real direct contact of people that want to learn something with people that know something. And the, the, this connection just, you know, sparkling new stuff that, you know, uh, you know bypassing the, 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 the stuff that would select 
consciously or unconsciously for certain results. And, you know, a lot of stuff that, you know, would not fare well in in, in a university environment because, of course, you wouldn't get grants, you wouldn't get funding, you wouldn't get uh, positions, you wouldn't get status, you wouldn't, you would be banned from the campus or something like that. A lot of that stuff uh, wouldn't happen in this specific system. Of course, I think that certain human beings would, would try to, to, people that would like to learn something would go to people that know this something, but they would quickly form a certain community there. So there's the question of how these communities are going to communicate because, you know, intellectual discourse is mostly about exchanging information. But I think that a lot of, of this bypassing is interesting in this regard that, that it unleashes stuff that was probably hidden by, you know, certain selection mechanisms that are present in institutional frameworks. Right, right. Well, yo, Yuri, we could talk about so much more, I'm sure, uh, but got to wrap it up somewhere. This was really, really interesting, man. Seriously, like, uh, this was sincerely very stimulating, and it was also just cool to get to know you better. So thanks for you know, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate you uh, joining me. Yeah, it was really nice. I really liked the invitation. We can do it again at any time. It was really nice to, to, to talk to people and, you know, I, I develop the ideas as I go talking to people. So yeah, the more we do it, the better.